Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. The Broadway musical A Strange Loop starts at intermission. The lights go down and center stage you see an usher, sort of classic Broadway usher, red jacket and black pants, the whole thing. He's working intermission, but the usher is the star of the show. He's surrounded by six figures wearing beige jumpsuits. Each person represents a different thought. Some of them have questions about the show he's working at, a Disney musical. Others ask about the show he's writing in his free time. How many minutes till the end of intermission? Is that how the show should open? Should there even be a show? No, it should start with what he's thinking, which is just a cursor blinking because of all of the directions that the narrative could go. A Strange Loop is a musical about writing a musical. It's about the usher, whose name also happens to be Usher, and his life his parents, his friends, his self-doubts, his aspirations. It's also about identity. What does it mean to be a black gay playwright? What does it mean to write a work of art about blackness or queerness? And for whom is that art? A Strange Loop explores some very big ideas in its hour and 45-minute runtime, but it is also funny, approachable, and very catchy. A Strange Loop was honored as Best Musical and Best Book of a Musical, at the most recent Tony Awards. Our correspondent Julie Klausner caught the show on Broadway, and she fell in love right away. So she sat down with Michael R. Jackson, the creator of A Strange Loop. Before we get into the interview, let's hear another song from the show. This is called Periodically. In it, one of the thoughts is singing as a voicemail from the protagonist's mother. I'd just like to remind you Periodically that I love you, son If you ever should find you Need encouragement Then you call me son I am your mama And I've always loved you Even when you be doing me wrong Michael R. Jackson, welcome to Bullseye. Thanks for having me. I'm so delighted to meet you, and I am such a huge fan of yours. Thank you so much for sitting down with me today. Of course, my pleasure. So I wanted to start by talking about how long it took for A Strange Loop to become what it is. And what kept you going over the two decades or so it took to actualize on Broadway? Was it faith? Was it some combination of stubbornness? (laughs) How do you keep whatever version of optimism is necessary to keep working on something for that long? Well, weirdly, I don't know that it was necessarily optimism, to be honest. It was that I had no um, ambition for the piece to ever get to Broadway at all, like, period. It was just this particular story was something that I felt passionate about. And because it was, I was drawn drawing, you know, a lot of it from my own life. And so I was just trying to figure something out. It was almost like this mystery that I had to solve. But the mystery was like myself in a strange way. And so I thought 
especially once it started to really evolve from, it started off as a monologue and it started to evolve into a musical later. And so as that happened, I thought, oh, maybe the most I can get out of this is like an off-Broadway production somewhere. And so then like when that happened, that for me at the time was like the zenith of whatever would happen with it. And even that wasn't something that I like had an ambition with all along. It was just like, I wanted to crack this story and this character and these and these thoughts that, you know, he had in his his mind. And so that doing that and also just in life, I did not have a plan B at all. Like that like it wasn't there was nothing I had to fall back on. I was working all of these like jobs, I was ushering, I was doing anything else. And then like that I hated that. And so the only thing I had left was the thing that I liked, which was writing the story. And so just that sustains me itself. I just think about how I can't even read something I wrote a year ago without cringing and for having worked on it for so long, how your relationship to your younger self changed and your younger versions of your writing changed so that you could integrate it into a more sophisticated piece. And was that challenging? You know, it was challenging because the the form of a strange loop itself is one that's like constantly trying to refine itself. And like, so there's always more, there's always something else that can be fixed or changed or whatever, especially as me, the person and also the artist gets older and gets more distance from it. I see more things. I'm like, Oh, I wish I'm not in that same space anymore. I wish I could change this part of that part or whatever. But the truth of it is, is that the musical is about someone who's 25 going on 26. I'm 41 now. So, like, I'm now different. So there are things that Usher says and does in A Strange Loop that I'm like, oh, oh, I wish I could change it to this or that. But I can't do that because I have to let him as the character be where he is to have the story that he's having to get to the point that he gets to by the end. Um, And that's why, like, even though I could go in and make more changes later, I'm not going to do that. I took you know, 18 years to sort of really figure out that story. And I, at a certain point, I have to leave it be. How did you know when you were done? How did you know to stop? Was, was it helpful to have collaborators to stay? stop, it's there? That was part of it. But it was also like, you know, getting to Broadway, I think, in many ways sort of helps, you know, I mean, I literally had to stop at a certain point because it had to. I had to give it to the actors and let them, you know, have their show. But also, I think just because so much of the development of the piece came from my own personal development, I had to get to a place where I was sort of like, nothing's wrong with you. That's what, but that's what the character's story is, is about someone trying to figure out what's wrong with them. And so then making peace in my own life helped me sort of make peace in the art. And so I I got to a point, you know, when we got to Playwrights Horizons, I said, stop. Then we did it at Willie Mammoth, and then I got to a, a certain place, and I said, stop. And and I was still fine-tuning. Then we got to Broadway, and I was like, we got to a certain place, and I was like, we have to stop. And it just was, you know, for good or for ill, like, this is this is the story. Dream except my own. But then one day I looked into. 
to the mirror And saw that I was old and all alone So my advice, don't play nice Don't look back and don't think twice Don't let doubt get in the way of what you want Just roll the dice, stay the course Seize the day, ride your horse into the fray Live your life and tell your story In exactly the same way There is so much in the show that acknowledges the presence of a white audience in the sense of the ensemble saying, we shouldn't be talking around Mm -hmm. these white people about these things. There is also so much, I don't know if it's as stated by the cast, but there are things in it where I was sitting there thinking, we can't talk about this around straight people. <laughs> I wonder what your relationship is with, I guess, whether you hesitate about how people who would consider you as other perceive your work or whether you kind of enjoy exposing parts of life that they are not usually visible to folks who don't see those parts of life. So something that's really important to me as an artist and that has become like really like super even more important in the last couple of years is the idea that I have to be free. I have to be free to express myself however I want to express myself. And what that means, particularly as a Black artist, is that I cannot and I will not operate from a place of fear. So that means, like, I have to be willing to be vulnerable artistically in front of whomever shows up and not worry so much about what are they going to think or what are they going to think or am I, you know, saying too much, revealing too much, whatever. Like, I have to be open. And so it's not that I get any sort of thrill or anything from, like, making people squirm or anything like that. that. I don't really care about that. I'm more interested in, like, inviting people to have authentic responses to whatever it is that they're seeing and hearing. And just not, get like, not giving a f- you know? Like, it's just, like, I know I'm just, it's the only thing I can come back to is I have to be free as an artist. Like, that, there's so much in the world that's always trying to constrain us in one way or the other. And in art is the one place where you have full sort of um, authority. And and I find that to be really powerful, you know, especially in a world that I often feel like, oh, God, I can't do this. I can't do that. Everybody says don't. Everybody says don't. Everybody says don't. Everybody says, don't. It isn't right, you know. And so in my writing, I'm just going to go there, like wherever there is. And often going there is a is a discovery for myself of like, you know, when I first started set out to write A Strange Loop, I didn't know where it would end up, not just in terms of where it's performed, but, like, the literal dramatic arc of it. I didn't know that Usher would sing the song that he sings at the end or that he would say, you know, maybe my biggest problem is the pronoun I. You know, like, that... But that feels, like, meaningful to, like, get to allow whatever has to happen to get that character to that place of confronting his I. Um, and and, And to do that requires a fearlessness which cannot be worried about what are white people going to say what are black people going to say what are straight people going to say what are gay people going to say what are you know what you know they're they're going to say whatever they're going to say 
and I just need to let them ex- say it and experience it, and I'm going to say what I need to say as well. More with Michael R. Jackson and Julie Klausner after the break. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Our guest is Michael R. Jackson. He's the creator of the Tony Award-winning musical, A Strange Loop. He's being interviewed by our correspondent, Julie Klausner. I wanted to talk about Sondheim a little bit, speaking of songwriters. And I know that your favorite Sondheim show is Follies. Is that correct? It is, although I feel like I'm constantly going back between Follies and A Little Night Music. But I think Follies is still the one. Oh, it's fascinating. I see Follies' influence in A Strange Loop certainly structurally. Mm -hmm. Not to mention, you know, it's got that incredible cast of interesting mm-hmm. divas, which is, I think, important. Yeah. Um, I know that Steve saw the show before he died, and he I did. wanted to know how much his opinion meant to you and whether it was a big deal to you that he saw it and whether he liked it. And Yeah, so I had won this award a couple of years ago called the Whiting Award, and it got back to me from the people who administered that award that they were happy, that he was happy that I had won it because I was the first musical theater writer to get the award. It normally only goes to playwrights and poets and and fiction folks and that sort of thing. And I had always been needing to see somehow if I could get in contact with him to thank him for saying that, but I... I wasn't at the time. And this is like way pre-pandemic. And then he came and saw the show. And I was there the night he saw it. The and I was Broadway like, version? The off-Broadway version. And I was there the night that he saw the show. And I was like kind of looking over. It's like, what is like what is he saying? I, you can only can see so much. And then he sort of skidaddled like right as it ended because he tends to do that. Like he, cause he doesn't want to get caught up in the, in the crowd. And he was like quite old even then. And then the pandemic hit. And... I had always heard over the years, everybody I knew in the theater world always like, here's my letter to Sondheim. Well, here's my letter from Sondheim. And here's my, you know, and I had never had written him and I got his like contact warning. I said, I'm just going to email him. So I emailed him to say, thank you. I'd heard about comments you had said about me having won that award. And then also thank you for coming to see the show. And then he wrote back like a week later being like, he saw the show, he loved it. And he was looking forward to whatever I was doing next. And he said he thought he had seen me in the lobby because I did run down, but I was too afraid to like really run after him and his partner. But anyway, it did mean a lot for me, a lot to me that he saw the show and that he liked it just because I had such a deep respect for him as a dramatist. And he, I don't count him as a 
a musical influence, but I do count him as an influence in the sense that he approaches songwriting like it's playwriting. And that's something that I deeply admire about him, that he's such a puzzle master and that he, like, is always sort of focused on, like, what does the character want? And, like, how do they start in one place and end in a different place by the end of the song? And what's sort of the dramatic function? And that's, I think that's a lesson that I will carry with me in everything that I do, of, like, trying to approach the songs as, like, little micro-stories. Because... That's the integrity that I want the musicals I write to have, that you can that you could like almost take the story out of it and still follow the journey of 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 the character through the songs. Right. Listen to the the original Broadway cast recording and get a sense of the show. Yeah. Like if you were to listen to a stranger outside of seeing it, there will be things that you would miss, but I think sure. you would still get like, you know a beginning, middle, and end to a character's journey. I wonder if his mind was blown at all to sit in an audience and hear songs about, like, uh, your white gay Dan Savagery and the stuff about Scott Rudin and be like, wait, you could do a show about that? Scott Rudin sat in the audience and listened to that, too. (laughs) Amazing. Amazing. um, But I just think of Sondheim thinking that, like, a musical about a pointillist painter is, like, too niche and no one's going to be able to connect to it. And I I wonder with him as, like, a gay man seeing someone living their truth so authentically and fearlessly. And I, I wonder if having been from the generation he was and knowing his attitudes towards theater, like, if he was like, wait, if I could have done this, I could have done so much more. You know, I I wonder. I mean, because he, they weren't exactly shrinking violets back in the fifties and sixties either. I mean, they, certainly like something like a shrink tube would not have happened in the fifties or sixties. But people were formally trying all kinds of stuff like back then. Like to me, I find every time I watch Gypsy and Mama Rose goes, a glove. I like I find that moment to be genuinely shocking yeah. because of what it's sort of implying and like this mother is literally like trying to get her daughter to like strip but like treating it like it's vaudeville in yeah. a strip house. And so like Well, you I, know I, this stuff with the mom and a strange loop, he was like, Yes. Yeah, like oh yeah, because he has his mother thing. So I, I like to imagine that he maybe felt like, you know, it was a part of a tradition, which I I very much feel, you know, connected to the tradition of musical theater for all its problems and in the sort of producing of it. But the form, I just, I feel very much a part of and proud to be a part of that tradition. I completely agree. I saw so much of Sondheim in this show and Sunday in the Park particularly, just as far as an artist getting to... And Company was a, a huge touchstone for me. Really? Yeah. Because it's about this like singular figure with all of these... The Bobby Baby and the yeah. Usher, 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 yeah. Usher. But like, also just like this guy and all his married friends, their their voices of course. in his head. Like, that was like a huge touchstone for me well, I'm working sure, on the show over the years. I'm sure he connected to it very personally and deeply. And I just think about him in a different time and sort of seeing what he gave birth to and yeah. feeling a tremendous sense of pride because I absolutely think that you're on the same level. Oh, thank you. That's so kind. That's an honor. One of the things that makes A Strange Loop so incredible when I first saw it is I was amazed by how you were able to turn 
things that were so specific into universal notions. And I'm sitting there crying in the dark, even though I'm not a Black gay man, completely relating to this lead character, not just because of compassion, but because we can all relate to being outsiders. Mm -hmm. And I guess... (laughs) How do you keep the audience in mind, or do you even need to, when you're writing about these experiences that are so specific to maybe not everyone can relate to this, you know, sexual experience, but we've all felt shame after something that we've been degraded by? Well, I think that that's, that's, it's just that. You know, the thing I sort of decided early on when we started doing the show at Playwrights was that I wanted to invite everyone in to meet the piece wherever they were that like I trusted that the audience would just could decide for themselves how they felt about anything. And also it is true. Like the song boundaries is one where yes, not everybody's had the, the experience that Usher had that preceded it, but everybody's had a moment of going, why did I do that? A moment of regret about something. It could be, something that you said or something that you didn't say or something that you did or or you hurt someone or some you know or you didn't tell someone you loved them or whatever it is and i and i sort of wanted to refract that through the specificity of you know this character going through what he was going through but like with the understanding that the audience is a collaborator and so i do think about the audience i don't pander to the audience but i do they're half, at least half the reason why we're there. And so I can't ignore them. I need to, like, I want to create the conditions for them to engage as much as possible. In this case, I needed the audience to dive deeper and deeper into Usher as he dives deeper and deeper into himself. And the deeper and deeper they dive into, into him, the deeper they dive into themselves. And that's why I always tell people when I'm asked, what do I want the audience to walk away with? I want them to walk away thinking about themselves. Also other people, but like the idea of like a shared humanity to me is a really powerful um, thing that theater can do. And certainly in this day and age, I think the idea of a shared humanity is, is very needed. And so I feel excited when lots of different people say, oh, this isn't my experience, but I related to it. And it's really funny to, you know, thinking about white audience members. I've had so many white people, like, come rushing up to me, being like, I know this isn't my story. I know it isn't. I know it. I know it isn't. I want you to know I know it's not for me, but 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 I really liked it. And I'm like, well, how do you know that it's not for you? I mean, if it's, it's for you, if you felt something. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's a hard thing in, in the world today because everything has to be so literally black and white and so binary in this like who is this for and who is it not for like by that logic i couldn't be attracted to tori liz and joni because that's not for me that's not for me like those a lot of the experiences that those ladies sing about weren't my experience but the feeling was the same and that's what i find so beautiful about art and what's so powerful about it is that you can literally sort of reach across a divide and like find a a common emotionality and a common something and that's i think that's very very important and that we should not lose sight of it in this like zeal to assign everybody 
you know, their their lane, their lane that they're in. Yeah. And I wonder if that connects to what you were saying earlier by using this work to sort of heal yourself and come to a place where you didn't hate yourself anymore. If feeling connected to a common humanity helped in that way as well. Yeah, I think so. Because, you know, I started writing the show as a monologue from a place of pure isolation. So, like, in a way, this thing that started off is I felt so alone, so misunderstood, so unheard, just in my own little vacuum of self. And and in working on the piece, I got to connect with so many people. And that's, like, you know, somebody hold me too close. Somebody hurt me too deep. Somebody sit in my chair and ruin my sleep and make me aware of being alive, you know. Like, I wanted to, I didn't want to feel so alone. Because um, alone is alone, not, not alive. alive, you know? I have a question that's very specific to the show, which hopefully everyone will get a chance to experience either live or through the original cast recording, or hopefully it'll be filmed. You have six actors on stage who play Usher's Thoughts. Yep. And I wonder what goes into not just casting them, but how you direct them in terms of sticking to their introductory lines of who they are and kind of keeping them on track? Like, is there a reason thought number one is going to play this character or thought number three is going to play that one? So a lot of that came very organically because of the six folks who play the thoughts, most of them had been a part of the development for a very long time. Jonathan Morrison, who sings periodically, has been singing that song since 2008. Um, and so everybody in the room over the years of working on it really sort of developed their thought in a, in a way. Um, like we moved some folks around a little bit and we divided some tracks up and reassigned some tracks as we saw like what we were trying to build um, overall. But like a lot of that came from just sort of the relationships that were formed in the room with the people and, like, with those actors. And, like, it just became very clear who should do what. Um, as I, Especially as I was, like, going, oh, I need this scene. Well, I always call it the reality show scene is what I call it when the family's just, like, going crazy in the living room. And I was like, oh, it's, like, very clear that, like, James should be the mother right. in that scene in part because of just his n- natural instrument. And like, oh, and then we need, you know, Antoine to be the dad. Like, it just, and like, and just moving those pieces around to see, to playing to everybody's strengths, you know? And so it was was a real organic process. We want to know what's going on in New York. We want to know what's going on in your life. With people we'll wrap up with Michael R. Jackson in just a minute. His musical, A Strange Loop, has moments of autobiography, characters based on people in his own life. And when we come back, we'll talk about what it was like showing the play to his family. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Just 
direction. Without any direction. Without any direction. If that's what you really wanted to do, then why ain't you just stay here? Because you're selfish. Most game shows quiz contestants about topics they don't even care about. But for more than 100 episodes, the Go Fact Yourself podcast has asked celebrity guests trivia about topics they choose for themselves. And introduced them to some of their personal heroes along the way. Oh my gosh. Shut up. <laughs> oh, I feel like I'm going to cry. Oh my stars. <laughs> it's so, so exciting. Join me, J. Keith Van Stratton. And me, Helen Hong. Along with guests like DJ Jazzy Jeff, Yardley Smith, Roxanne Gay, and so many more on the trivia game show podcast, Go Fact Yourself. Twice a month, every month on Maximum Fun. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, our guest is Michael R. Jackson. He's the creator of the Broadway musical, A Strange Loop. A Strange Loop is a show about writing, artistry, and identity. The show's main character is a theater usher who moonlights as a playwright. He interacts with a chorus of characters who represent his inner dialogue. The show won the award for Best Musical at the most recent Tony Awards. Interviewing him is our correspondent, Julie Klausner. Let's get back into their conversation. I know Terry Gross asked you about how much of the show is based on real things your parents have said and what your relationship is with your folks in terms of the show. So she already got the scoop. But my question is sort of where you got the balance to be free enough to write about your family honestly, knowing that you still wanted them in your life and write about them in a way that was truthful without worrying about what your family would think. So the answer to that is sort of dual. There's a duality to my response to that because on one level, I didn't worry about my family's response to it because I think of it all as sort of fictional. Because like, in order to write it, I I did actually have to make some things up in addition to whatever things might, you know, correspond to my own life. But then on the other side, I was nervous about my parents to see it because my parents are not really theater people at all. And so I was just, I was sort of worried about whether they would understand it just as a anything because they don't go to the theater like that. And I, it wasn't like I was writing Hello, Dolly, you know? And so I just thought they might be like, what is this? And so the balance just sort of came from me deciding to just be fearless. Like, at the end of the day, that always was sort of the answer. Like, if I was afraid to do it, that meant that I needed to do it. Really? Yeah. And so I did that, like, the whole time. And that's sort of how I have to approach everything. Because otherwise, it's very easy for me to get caught up in the thoughts in my head. Yeah. Saying, everybody says don't, everybody says don't, everybody says don't. It isn't right. Right. You know? And so I had to just, like, be fearless and just say and go for it. Because I was, at the end of the day, just trying to get to the end of the story. Mm. And so I was afraid and I wasn't afraid, um, but for different reasons. I wanted to know how your love of soap operas impacts your life as a writer and as a creative person. Well, I mean, sort of in the biggest way is that I have like a life. I like I love story. Like I love characters. I love 
people who do contradictory things. I love sort of dun dun dun. I love all of that. Um, on the other tip, like my next musical is literally sort of drawn from my love of soap operas and lifetime movies and melodrama. Um, it's a musical called White Girl in Danger. And um, it sort of is exploring this idea of, of representation or, you know, sort of what we mean or what, what are the implications of the, this thing that we call equity, diversity, and inclusion. It has some meta elements similar to A Strange Loop in a way, but it's, it's an even deeper sort of weirder thing because it's set in a, soap, a made-up soap opera town that I made called All White. And in All White, there are two races and classes of people. And one of them are the All Whites who have like fantastic stories beyond their wildest dreams. And then you have the sort of background characters who have slavery and police violence. And that's what they get. And they just repeat those over and over and over again until one of them is like, I want in on these All White stories. And so she sort of wanders, she's sort of granted access to the all-white world and then suddenly she starts to usurp storylines and be like you know i grew up watching days of our lives and sammy brady was like from the moment she walked on that on into our lives in salem in 1993 she like had a plan is that your favorite it was the one i grew up on my favorite was was another world until it was canceled and then it was sort of like and then I fell deeply in love with One Life to Live, but also Guiding Light. I mean, I watched all of them for like. Such Did you a, watch with your mom? Did you watch? Alone? I watched with my great aunt when I was a little little kid, and then as I got older, I would watch on like days off and half days, and then I started to record on VHS when I was at school, and I would watch them when I got home while I was doing my homework, and then like I got to college and I would schedule my classes around them, but also still recording and I just got like deeply 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 into them over the many years did you like things about soap operas like Tootsie or Soap Dish I love Soap Dish so 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 much I love Tootsie too but I don't think I saw that until much later I think what I love most about soaps is that they're worlds without end and that the story just continues to play out and repeat and be told again with different people and different characters and different and today the role of so-and-so is played by another actor and that's a whole other story and that there's something about like the mortality of of, of like of thinking about life is sort of going on yeah forever and ever like it's sort of magical to me and and it's, and then in terms of white girl in danger itself especially in the last couple of years, as it feels to me like life has become a soap opera, Mm -hmm. there was something about that that I had, that I needed to, that I need to express in this show about what life has felt like inside of this sort of soap opera. Crazy town. Crazy town of like crazy politics and... But every, I mean, but also like in in my own life, like watching people in my world, friends, people who like lose their minds, watching me lose my mind, like one day, and then and, and getting and that's a, a Tony, really, and, like <laughs> so, and then some days I feel I would feel like during the pandemic I would feel like I was a villain, and some days I would feel like I was a victim, and like and going just going back and forth, and that's something that happens on soap operas all the time. One day, you know. 
Kristen Demira as played by Eileen Davidson is like the good girl who moved to Salem and and was trying to sort of get away from like her evil, you know, stepfather or foster father, Stefano Demira. And then one day he crossed over to the dark side and she became the bad girl who like, you know, locked Dr. Marlena Evans up in a secret room in the basement. And like, and there's something about that, that, that those stories can have that kind of broad sweep that weirdly feels like a metaphor for life sometimes, mm-hmm. even if obviously I'm not locking anybody up in the basement, but sometimes it feels like I'm locking somebody up in the basement. Um, and I just wanted to know finally what you are watching right now and what is inspiring you or what's just sort of what you're enjoying. So I am have mostly been watching old things. So I'm, I, during the lockdown, I got really into Murder, She Wrote, which I had never had seen it before. Really? I started watching it during the lockdown because okay. it was something my mom always liked, but I never watched it. And I started watching it and 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 I, I I've gotten a little busy, but I basically would watch it every night before bed because it's every episode is self-contained. Oh God! And just the guest stars on that show are just beyond heavenly. They are beyond. They're like butter. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And I there's something about that storytelling that sort of ties in a little bit with my love of soaps. Sure. Storytelling and that like it's just. It goes on and on and on. And you get to just like live with Jessica Fletcher doing the same thing every episode. And there's something very comforting about that. So I've been watching a lot of that. And by Um, the way, when you finish, there's always Columbo. I've heard that Columbo is a a similar experience with Peter Falk. you've got your Cassavetes connection. Yeah, yeah. So you've got plenty of guest stars. But also I started watching, although I fell off and I need to get back to it, is um, Cagney and Lacey. And I also really want to see The Love Boat. Mm. But it's not, like, available. It's not easy to find. You don't have cable because it's always on that cable. one channel. No, I don't, I don't have cable, nor I only have um, Verizon Fios. But, like, uh, and then, like, as far as, like, new stuff, I, like, watch White Lotus, which I liked a lot. But I tend to, like, not like most new things. It's, like, a pro- it's like a, becoming a problem for me. Michael R. Jackson, what a pleasure. Thank you so much for sitting down with me, and I wish you nothing but good things. I can't wait to see what's next. Oh, thank you, Julia. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Michael R. Jackson, interviewed by Julie Klausner. A Strange Loop is playing at the Lyceum Theater on Broadway right now. Tickets are available. Our thanks very much to our pal and correspondent, Julie Klausner, for conducting the interview She is one of the hosts of the very funny podcast, Double Threat. She's also a writer. You can see her work in the new Kids in the Hall reboot and on the musical TV comedy, Schmigadoon. So... That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. My home, a little more empty this week. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellow at Maximum Fun is Tabitha Myers. We get booking help from Merritt Davis. Our interstitial music is by DJW also known as Dan Wally. 
Our theme song is called Huddle Formation, written and recorded by The Go Team. Thanks to them and Memphis Industries, their label, for providing it to us. Bullseye is also on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. Follow us there, and we will share with you all of our interviews, that you may share them with others. I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.